it was really eye-opening to me and it really kind of revealed to me you know the soul of what Notre Dame truly is I mean at the end of the day you know Notre Dame has has a you know reputation of you know being this institution of high integrity and people who are you know Christian based and all this other kind of bullshit that that's not really true I mean don't get me wrong I'm very proud to have gone to the institution mm-hmm. I think that I, I, I feel proud to have survived it I mean those people who, who have gone there know that there's a real cutthroat approach at Notre Dame which was really shocking it wasn't it wasn't that way at Bucknell and it certainly wasn't that way at Texas um, and so to, for it to be true at, at a place like Notre Dame where Christianity is the base of the goddamn you know um, campus to be so cutthroat and nasty and, and zero sum you know in order for me to win you have to lose you know that sort of an approach I've talked to other graduates who went undergrad in which I actually had a chance to go undergrad and, and didn't go I went to Bucknell so I could play football but um, I've and, you know part of the reason why I went to, for law school is because I always wanted to go Notre Dame had this mystique but I, I talked to people who went to Notre Dame undergrad and they would they would tell me like how there would be like one or two books in the library that everybody was dependent on and you had to go and take turns and, and people would go there and the person who was first there would go and, and do their work and then literally tear the fucking pages out of the book so people behind them couldn't because understand what the information was. Yeah, zero sum. In order for me to win, you have to lose. I mean, what kind of bullshit is that? I'm always of the thought process of if we can win together, I don't I don't need you to lose in order for me to win. If we can both win, then let's do that. Well, what, why, why the fuck wouldn't you do that? It doesn't even make sense to me that a person would be just so thoughtless that they would tear pages out of a book so that someone else couldn't read that same information and come to the same conclusion that they had the opportunity to come to. It doesn't, to me, that doesn't make any sense. But that's the environment of Notre Dame. And so, you know, the reason why I don't wear Notre Dame paraphernalia, you know, the way I wear Texas paraphernalia, you know, my experience at Texas was completely different. It was, I mean, now, admittedly, business school is very culturally different than Mm -hmm. law school. Law school is very zero-sum. It is, I mean, literally, um, the way they grade the papers is whoever is the best person in the fucking class, they get the highest grade, and then they, they grade everybody against that person. Well, what if that person... Is Notre Dame or Texas? Top law schools do this shit. So Notre Dame is not unique. So at Notre Dame, you know, in the law school, whoever gets the highest grade, then everybody else is graded against that paper. So are we talking, so we said paper, and not just, you know, A, B, C, D answers. Mm-hmm. So we're talking, when you say paper, we're talking a little bit about subjectivity. Yeah. Because, so, so we're talking yeah. subjectivity so that it goes on, the onus is on the instructor and their cultural experience, being able to relate to the cultural experience and the perspective of whoever that top person is. Yeah. 
Are you saying there's bias inlaid in the system in law school regardless? Is that what we're getting at? Well, I, I think so to some degree, although, you know, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, really, it's the synthesis of the information. And, and, and again, it's, it's perspective. Mm. One thing about the law is that there is no one answer. There are only perspectives. And so, yeah, you can ask the question of whether or not a person applied a legal theory appropriately. But sometimes maybe someone's coming from a, a, a completely different perspective such that they're thinking about it anew that the, even the professor or even whoever is the top paper didn't think through. And, and that's, that's the beauty of having, you know, a diverse population to come with diverse thought, to come at challenges from multiple angles. Mm -hmm. The thing about the law is there are perspectives. And, and what, what the professor is actually grading is really the connectivity of your logic thought process which is a really difficult thing to do. And to suggest that one logical thought process is better than another, is really, I mean, I I'm not entirely sure even how that fucking happens. Understanding the law is fucking priceless, particularly as a black man in this fucking country at this fucking time. It is priceless. Let me tell you, it is a fucking shield. It is without question. Um, having said that, if I had it to do over again, knowing what I know, I'm not sure I would go to Notre Dame because the experience was just so fucked up. And that's the reason why you don't see me wear a whole lot of Notre Dame shit. Now, I actually have a handful of Notre Dame pieces, mm -hmm. but... You know, when I look at my Texas experience compared to my Notre Dame experience, it ain't close. So is it more of, well, obviously we talk about the reality of Notre Dame and the underlying sense that your validity as a black man is not part of their process no. at Notre Dame. That being said, wonderful institution. I love it. Wonderful law school, obviously, because you wanted to go there. Texas was different, but it's also, there's a, there's a, a major factor is where you were as a person. Mm -hmm. Because at Notre Dame, you're how old? At Notre Dame, I was 22. 22, young man, challenged for the first time, not challenged for the first time, you challenged that book now, obviously, mm -hmm. but there's a more intellectual rigor that's expected. Yeah. So you get to that Notre Dame. Texas, you go, fuck it, I can do this shit. I did it at Notre Dame, this ain't gonna be shit to me. Yeah. And had you had, what we discussed earlier, some life experience, or was it Bucknell, Notre Dame, a year later, Texas? Was it one to the next? Mm -hmm. Or were there some, was there some time, some lapse, some yeah. in the intervening years between Notre Dame and Texas where life comes into play, you figure out who you are as a person, you can bring more, I should say, to what's being offered at Texas that you could not possibly have done at Notre Dame. So is it you? where you are as a person to make the experience better in Austin, or is it just the fact that Notre Dame was just, this is what it was, and it was not welcoming to me as a young black man?
That's a good question. And I, I would argue that it's a bit, a bit of a mixed answer. And I think the answer is that at Notre Dame, you know, I was a 22 year old straight from the, the experience from Bucknell, but no life experience, right. not a husband, not a father, not a landowner, you know, and I'm trying to put into context these interesting concepts of law around property, torts, um, criminal law, and, you know, these are just fact, these are theoretical fact patterns that don't have a lot of meaning to me at the moment, at the time. So, so after I graduated from Notre Dame, I practiced law in Philadelphia for two years. Criminal law? Or no, no, no. Well, I, I actually clerked in criminal court during the summer between my first and second years of law school, which was very eye-opening. Because again, this was at the height of the you know the crack trade. So years. This when is this is, law. This is what years. This is the summer of '91. '91. So you know, I sat in on the indictment of the leaders of the Junior Black Mafia. Which is for anybody who doesn't know, what is that? The Junior Black Mafia was they were basically the head of the drug trade in Philadelphia. Which this were, is Nino Brown, New Jack City. Well, I don't remember the fella's name out of Philadelphia. I actually just read an article about about the, the Junior Black Mafia. The one story that I do remember, and this was this was brought up during the indictment of a um, a member of the Junior Black Mafia while I was clerking in criminal court, and this was a gentleman who happened to be in a traffic jam in Philadelphia on I-95 and um, and for some reason, the person behind him started to honk his horn and beep at this this, this member of the Junior Black Mafia. And so uh, one of the henchmen, I guess the henchman was actually driving the car, but the leader was actually riding in the car. And so the leader said to the henchman, look, go out and beat this, this motherfucker's ass, you know, for, for honking his horn, which he did in front of this man's you know, wife and, and family. And after, after pistol whipping this dude in public, the leader yells out the window, just shoot him and come back to the car and let's get going. And he did. And he shot that man dead in front of his family. And this dude was sitting in court right in front of me. This is a stone cold killer. <laughs> and I you know, I looked at, looked at this cat and that was the first time I feared a man other than my father. <laughs> These cats were not fucking around. These were real deal. These were killers. Hustler, word, I pull the trigger long. Grip my teeth, spray to every nigga's gone. Got my block sewn on my dope spot. Last thing I sweat, so suck a punk cop. Move like a king when I roll hops. You try to flex, bang, another nigga drop. You gotta deal with this, cause in the way out, why? Cash money ain't never gonna play out. I got nothing to lose, much to gain. In my brain, I got a capitalist migraine. I gotta get paid tonight. You motherfucking right, taking my grip. Check my bitch, keep my game tight. So many hoes on my jock, think I'm a movie star. 19, I got a $50,000 car. Go to school, I ain't going for it. Kiss my ass, bust the cap on the Moet. Cause I don't wanna hear that crap. I'd rather be a new jack hustler. And, you know, I clerked in criminal court and, you know, I had that experience and, you know, I come back to Notre Dame, you know, Lily White experience and, you know, people questioning and all that kind of stuff. Why are you here? You know, from action, that kind of shit. And I'm like thinking to myself, I'm just here to get through this, you know, get to the other side, 
you know, pass the bar and let's start practicing, which I did. Mm-hmm. Pass the bar. And, you know, the bar wasn't hard. But there was anxiety, right? Because it was because the other thing is, you know, I got hired by a firm, and um, I won't say the name of the firm, but it is the oldest firm in continuous practice in the United States, and it's in Philadelphia. So those of you who know the history will know what firm that is. I'm not sure I was the first black lawyer, but at, at, at a minimum, I was the second black lawyer. This is 1991. No, this, so this is so. I clerked for criminal court in the summer of 92. I clerked for them in the summer of 93. I got my I got my offer from them and I started working for them in the summer of 94. Okay. So in 1994, I'm working for them. I'm the only black lawyer there. Out of how many? 90. 90 lawyers, one one black. They lawyer. could not find any in the intervening years. And I'm not sure I'm the first. Mm-hmm. But if, if I'm not the first, then there was only one other before me. I'm not sure I'm not sure if this person worked for the firm or if he just clerked for the firm. And I know his name and I'm not gonna say his right. name. But whatever the case, at the time I was the only black lawyer there. So I felt some level of, of pressure that I can't I can't pat I can't fail the bar. I can't be the only person who's ever failed the bar out of all of their summer classes, especially being the only black person Mm -hmm. here. And what's interesting about that is um, when I started was the summer of 94, which is the same summer of the OJ OJ trial. And um, I remember the angst and anxiety and anger once the acquittal was announced. And as a black lawyer, I thought to myself, I'm convinced that OJ killed those people. But the job that Johnny Cochran did, oh, absolutely. he was a fucking master. Yes, he was. He litigated circles around everybody who else was involved in the case. Everybody, Every, even members of his own goddamn team, he litigated circles around the rest of them. He took them all to school. And in the movie, which was the Fox movie, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, which I watched this week in its entirety, my naivety prevented me at the time from perhaps understanding the depth of race as a factor yeah. in this movie. And I, I think sometime last year, I also watched the ESPN documentary, um, O.J. Made in America, which that is further, the, that's better. That is the more impactful that is the more informative absolutely because that gives you context which is what i was missing as a person i like everybody else bought into the myth of oj simpson oj simpson was a childhood hero for me when i was 10 years old i had a full buffalo bills uniform and football was my sport and you know i didn't you were running back you were fullback i was a fullback position more or less I, I, I didn't smoke or drink because he didn't smoke or drink. You know what I mean? Which is funny, now that we're drinking brown liquor, but that's not the point. <laughs> so that's the point. You're on a butcher radio, this is my friend D, and we're many minutes into a conversation on our first episode of uh, the Brown Liquor Chronicles. And among other things, we, we were now touching on O.J. Simpson because we're getting to that hour where the brown liquor, we're two and a half shots, no, 
four and a half shots in yeah. <laughs> of, uh, what's it called again? Belvini. Belvini. So if you, perhaps maybe as the first episode, maybe folks out there listening, so grab a glass of something, if you haven't already at this point. If it's Belvini <laughs> or, or whatever it is, and so sit brown back. Some brown liquor. And, some brown liquor and sit back and vibe to this conversation. Talk back at us across the podcast line if you want to. But at least hear what we're saying. So we're talking OJ, 1994. I watched the documentary. Didn't realize how much of a factor race was into it. Let's just fucking OJ killed him. And he got away with it. He got away with it. He got away with it because of the genius of Johnny Cochran. is that everybody, A, everybody deserves a defense, and B, no matter how heinous any individual is, no one or nothing is more threatening to us as individuals and to our freedom than the government, which is the reason why the government must always be held to the highest standard. And so at the end of the day, the police fucked up the investigation, and the prosecution took the wrong path. Those two things meant that they didn't deserve, they didn't deserve the um, uh, guilty verdict. Right. They didn't earn it. And so at the end of the day, if their process isn't pure, then even a heinous killer should go free. And the reason why is because if their process is not pure, then all of us as individuals are threatened. And that's that's a very difficult concept to wrap your mind around. But at the end of the day, the government did not deserve that prosecution. They didn't deserve it. Watching that movie, again, I know it's, some things can be sensationalized, some things can be expanded on that may not have. Which is what makes the documentary better. Which is what, exactly. The documentary, OJ Made in America, ESPN, probably a better. Outstanding. A better viewing if you wanted to understand where OJ came from. Not justifying what he did, mm-hmm. but just understanding why he could have ended up doing, let's, let's just call it what it is. Why he could have ended up murdering those two fucking people. Yeah. So, but the movie, The People versus O.J. Simpson, yeah. the one thing I didn't know, which the movie elucidated, was just the confluence of just fuckery on the part of the prosecution and the witnesses, like the police DNA expert who didn't take the samples and did what he was supposed to do, and then Mark Furman's personal history, yeah. and how that was used to favor OJ because of honestly everything that happened with Rodney King a couple years a couple years earlier, and the fear of what might have bubbled up post OJ. Mm-hmm. So the genius of Johnny Cochran to seize on that if the movie reflects what actually happened, which probably is not the case, but the genius of Cochran to figure out a way to represent my client, which is the purpose of an attorney, a trial attorney. What can I do to best serve my client? 
and the movie is an accurate depiction of the reality, then fucking Johnny Cochran is a genius. He was a master lawyer, and he is a walk. Well, he was a walking, talking representation of everything that we love and hate about lawyers. Which is what? Which is the fact that the standard is beyond a reasonable doubt, mm-hmm. which is an extremely high standard. And and so at the end of the day, if you can put together a plausible a plausible alternative to the truth, then you can get there. The problem is, and this is, if I'm proud of one thing of having been a graduate of Notre Dame, it's this. When we graduated, it was clear to us that our pursuit is for truth. Above all, our pursuit is for truth. And so for me, It would have been very difficult for me as a Notre Dame graduate to defend O.J. Simpson because I would not have been able to put forth a fact pattern that is contrary to what I might have known as being the truth. Mm -hmm. I would have been able to defend him from a procedural perspective, but not from a factual perspective, because I think the facts... God damn it, the facts The facts said kill him. killed him. The those, facts kill him. The dude killed those people. He killed those people. There's no question so about it. So how common, and I know you're not a trial lawyer, but how common is that in the law where the procedure gets people off? How common is that, that people get off on so-called technicalities? I would say that it is extremely common. In fact, it's so common that that's exactly the reason why I don't actually actively practice law today. insurance defense litigation. And so when you're on the defense side, um, you look for elements where the claimants have made mistakes and you protect your client by highlighting those mistakes and therefore making sure that your client doesn't have to pay. You say client in this particular case, as an insurance lawyer, obviously you're you're I'm representing companies. I'm, I'm, well, but, but no, but, but so insurance, so I'm, I'm representing the insurance companies who also represent companies. Okay. My client is the company, ultimately, mm-hmm. and their clients are individuals, people. Many times those people look like you and me. You know, I was really good at identifying elements where the plaintiff's um, uh, counsel has dropped the ball. Maybe they didn't file a paper on time. Maybe they didn't look at the statute very closely, or maybe they didn't do things 
exactly as, as the judge demanded that they do it. And I would seize that because at the end of the day for plaintiff's clients is about volume. In order for them to make money, they have to look at 50, 60, 70, maybe 100 cases. I have to manage 15, 20, 30 cases, right? I have more time per case to defend my client. He's got to do whatever it is that he does or she has to do whatever it is that she does in order to, you know, churn. Mm -hmm. So I was winning on technicality. So it happens all the time. So Arnold Jackson, young man from Philadelphia, PA, 19 years old, as a young man, made a mistake. He's represented by Stephen Smith, who's got a case lord out of his ass that he can't manage. Arnold's going to go to jail on a technicality more so than he is on the facts. So let me be clear. I didn't do criminal okay. law. Okay. But so let me let me change your fact pattern just a minute. Okay. Just, just a little bit. Maybe it's Winifred Smith and she slipped and fell in a grocery store. And she's being represented by, you know, John Q, mm -hmm. whatever. And he's got a he's got a hundred cases like that. But because he's got 100 cases, he didn't file his papers properly. I'm representing the grocery store through the insurance company. And because the filing wasn't timely, the fact that this woman did in fact slip, right. she did in fact fall, she did in fact break her ankle, and she should be compensated Boy didn't do the, the, the filings properly. So she ain't getting shit. So she ain't getting nothing because I'm going to get it thrown out. And I was good at it. <laughs> and the problem that I had with that is, again, these plaintiffs look like me and you. And so, so here's the question, D. And I don't, this is not a personal attack on you per se, no. but in general, how the fuck do y'all sleep with yourselves at night? Knowing that is that's the case. That's the whole point. That's is that why we're drinking brown liquor right now? No. <laughs> because you got used to brown liquor no. to solve and deal with that disparity? No. That's the reason why I only did that kind of work for two years. Because I said to myself... So what happens to the brothers and others who do that for a career? I don't know. I can't speak to that. I, I mean... Well, I'll tell you what my response was. My response was, hey, listen, I can't do this for a living, so I'm going to go do something else. And in order to prepare myself to do something else, I'm going to go to school and get more skills. Oh, and by the way, I'm also going to create a philanthropic organization. And my organization, what we do is we give free legal advice to people, particularly people of color, but anybody mm -hmm. who calls us. And if you call us with a question, then I'm either going to refer you to a lawyer that I used to practice against that I had a lot of respect for, intellect, not only intellectually, but professionally, that I know that they're going to do right by you. And, and I know they're going to take care of you. Or I'm going to walk you through, because the other thing is, a lot of times you don't even need a lawyer. You could take this shit to the small claims court and litigate it yourself. And so, you know, what I learned in law school 
again, at Notre Dame. What we learned is, you know, 100 years ago, the lawyer was more a member of the rest of the society. And so if you came to me with a, with a problem, then I didn't say, okay, well, pay me $500 up front, and then maybe I'll help you. Um, and instead, what, what, what those lawyers used to do 100 years ago was, hey, listen, I'm going to help you. And, you know, maybe you can't pay me in cash, but maybe you can bake me a cake. Maybe you can give me, you know, a chicken. And so, so that's what my philanthropic organization would do. I would uh, give either a person free legal advice mm -hmm. and help them understand how they can actually litigate their own case. And I would walk them through that and give them pointers as to how to do that. Or I would refer them to a lawyer that I knew would, would take care of them. And so that was my response to that, because at the end of the day, I agree with you. I don't know how people, you know, do that long term. I don't know how people sleep at night. I don't know how people basically take advantage of others. The law is an interesting thing because there are two types of people, I think, in the world. You know, there are people who will beat you up with what you don't know. And then there are people who will say, hey, listen, let me help you. I choose to be the person to say, hey, look, let me, let, me, let me figure out how to help you solve your problem and get you to a place where you're better. How rare are the Johnny Cochran's of the world. And again, my vision of Johnny Cochran, having seen this movie, a very conscious brother who's aware of the reality of life outside the law and how the law must be reminded every day of that reality. And I know you're not a criminal lawyer, but again, you represent folks that looks like us. Yeah. Um, versus insurance companies and big corporations. So how I mean, you might not be able to speak to this because you don't know every black lawyer there is in Philadelphia or anywhere in the country. But how how rare is a Johnny Cochran? It seems like a conscious brother who just fucking got it. You know, they use I mean, his platform for quote unquote the greater good. Well, I mean, you know, there's there's a couple things there. Johnny Cochran was an opportunist. And don't get me wrong, I think from a legal perspective, Johnny Cochran was an uh, intellectual giant in terms of being a, a technician, a legal technician. He understood the process and he could put into context the process as it related to the social fabric of what was happening. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Which his white counterparts had difficulty with. Now, having said that, it doesn't it doesn't change the fact that um, you know he represented um, celebrities, and there's a certain there's a certain um, self promotion in relation to that. So, 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 so let's be clear: Johnny Cochran is not Al Sharpton. They're not the same. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Now, now, having said that, you know, is there a racial element to what's happening to Michael Jackson? Probably. 
and does Johnny Johnny Cochran get that more so than any other type of lawyer, meaning lawyer of a member of the majority? Probably. And he brings a level of sensitivity that that, that understands that, and I, and I get that, and that's probably true, and that was probably true. But he wasn't representing Pookie on the corner right. from around the way. Right. He, that that's not what he was doing. Uh, you Do you know? think he could? Yeah, of course he could. Right. Of course he could. But there was none, there's not a lot of money in that. And, right. and you know, motherfucker was in L.A. Take a lot of money to live in L.A. Yeah, you know I mean, he had to pay the bills like everybody else. So, you know, he, he did what he had to do. But in terms of being a legal technician, I, I put it to you like this. Johnny Cochran made F. Lee Bailey sit on the bench. Think about that for a minute. F. Lee Bailey is an intellectual fucking giant from, mm -hmm. a, from in the legal world. He sat F. Lee Bailey on the bench and he took the lead. Think about that. That's some shit for you right there. And he did that and then was and was successful in what he did. Right. How about that? Right. <laughs> That's some shit for you right there. So the bull was bad. He was bad. He was a bad man. And he did that in the first year of my of my practicing of the law. How did that affect you? Not so much. I mean, it was a cultural watershed in this country. But how did that affect you as a black lawyer? Man, it filled me with. A pride that you can't, I can't even. Not the verdict. No. Well, it, it was the verdict. Just being able to procedurally prove, do this for your client. But that's the thing. That was the verdict. To okay. to achieve the verdict, the fact that he that that he technically took the steps to do what was necessary to get a jury there, and I mean he. He took those government lawyers to school. I mean, everything that he was doing, everything that he was saying, and I watched that case. I mean, as, as a young lawyer, as a, a, as a freshly minted lawyer, and that was the biggest case in the country at the time, I was watching that every day. And it was extremely influential on me. Basically, what that said to me was, Intellectually, we can be at the top of our game and no one can fuck with you. If you're just that good, nobody can fuck with you. I mean, to me, Johnny Cochran was just, he was the pinnacle of legal process. I mean, he literally litigated circles around his competition. I, it was masterful in the angst that the white partners of, of my firm at the time, you know, they just couldn't understand it. They just couldn't wrap their minds around it. But at the end of the day, no, no matter what your leanings were, you couldn't deny that Johnny Cochran was just better than the people he was competing against. It, and, it, and it wasn't close. It wasn't close. It was a double-edged sword because at the, at, I mean, as a lawyer, you think to yourself, wow, I can be as good as that. But as a black man, you think to yourself, oh shit, white people are really mad and I need to be careful. <laughs> so you, you have both of those things swirling in you at the time. And so it was, you know, it was, it was an interesting 
confluence of, of, of events. Of events. What would you say? Start with the 30 for 30 OJ Made in America? Yeah. And then go to the movie on Fox? Absolutely. You okay. gotta start with that. You because gotta again, start Because of that. the necessary context needed to understand as best as we can the person who OJ was and, and why he became that way. But it's Not to justify... Fuck it, let's say. Not to justify murder. No. But just to justify... Justify is the wrong word. To... Just understand. Understand why this individual, because it's not a race, or not a type of person, that it's just, a person. Just, just, just a dude. This particular human being in America at that particular time right. would make these decisions in summer of 1994. But I think, it's, I think it's broader than that. I agree with you that, yes, you need to watch that in order to understand OJ, but you need to watch it to understand the context of what was happening in LA at the time. Because there was an interesting dynamic that was happening in Southern California that I have to be honest, before watching that, I was completely ignorant to. Like for instance, the whole thing about the woman who was who was shot dead by the, the LAPD. They raided the drug house. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, had, I had no right, idea right, about right, that. Right, right. And so, you know, the jury at the time, the jury of your peers, they had that on their minds while they're trying to filter through this fact pattern that they're being presented of this man, this icon, you know, and, and it's being presented to them by this amazing black man. Right. I mean, you know, think about the social conflicts of a juror at that time as they're thinking through all of that. Okay, so that's the other thing. They spent an episode and a half on the jury. And yeah. All the machinations by the prosecution and the defense to basically eliminate jurors that would not bring them the verdict that they wanted. Because it then showed me the importance of the jury of your so-called oh, peers yeah, yeah. and how those are manipulated. Yeah. From the voir dire, which is the jury selection, through, I guess, being able to get rid of, again, people that you don't think are going to benefit you as a trial attorney. Yeah. So besides racism, besides implicit bias, besides all that, there is this thing about 12 impartial jurors of your peers, yeah. which does not exist. It doesn't exist. And then these people go about deciding your fate. These are human beings too. Yeah. Human beings with bad experiences. Human beings just like you who can be tainted. Yeah. Who, who can, so how, I mean, but again, that for you, that's just part of the process. Yeah, you're not a trial lawyer, you're a corporate lawyer. So do juries come into play in the work that you do or? They don't, but, but I will say that I've seen the jury process. It is an imperfect process. I mean, at the end of the day. And that's the deciding factor. That's the other thing that I saw. Is a deciding factor, and it is, it is just as fucked up as every other part of the process. But the problem is, is that there's no process that's better. Like, what, what else would you have? 
um, the defendant has the choice. Either I want a jury or I want a judge. Now that I don't, I didn't know. So you do. Yeah, you have a choice. In a trial like that, you have the choice. Yeah. So what do most people think? The jury. The jury. And they're, and you know, they, do, do, do you know why? Do you know why? Why? Because in the, in the judge, you have an educated jury. An educated jury means it's going to be harder to persuade this person on some bullshit. So the jurors will be able to make mistakes and understand my human foibles more. Exactly. Wow. Part of what both sides are trying to do is they're trying to identify who can be sympathetic to my argument. If they're not, if they're close to my argument, let's get them out. But who will be open, who at least will consider the things that I'm going to tell them to try to persuade them that I'm right. So juxtapose that thought process from both the prosecution and the defendant side with the idea that the average intellectual age of any jury is about the eighth fucking grade. So you have to boil things down to the understanding of basically a 13 year old. Are you fucking kidding me? But but that's our that's our process. Right, right. That's our process. And you know, I would argue, okay, so what would be better? I, I don't know. Hold up. Frank, Frank. Now, juxtapose all of that against the idea that most educated, you know, people, professional people, they do, what, what do they do? They do everything they can to get out of jury duty. They get out of it. And we're left we're with, dealing with, right, we're left with those people else. who are not crafty enough to get the fuck out of jury duty. That's what we're left with. So we have an imperfect system. Yeah, I mean, it is what it is. Now, here's, here's the thing. We, we, we could change it and say, hey, look, when you get on jury duty, you don't have a choice. But then, you know, then the ACLU will get all fucked up and they'll be like, well, no, you can't do that and all that other kind of shit. So this is what the fuck we're left with. This is what we're left with. So what you're saying is that we need somebody like Trump who can just make all the decisions for us. Well, I don't know about that, but at the end of the day, it's got to be better than figuring out a bunch of fucking eighth graders to figure out what the fucking answer is based on people who have been educated for 15 years beyond them to, to persuade them as to what the answer should be. Wake up. Frank, Frank. Fade it. Frank, Frank. Fade it. Frank, Frank. Okay. Now open your mind up and listen to me, Kendrick. I'm in your conscience. If you do not hear me, then you will be history, Kendrick. I know that you're nauseous right now, and I'm hoping to lead you to victory, Kendrick. If I take another one down, I'ma drown in some poison, abusing my limit. I think that I'm feeling the vibe. I see the love in her eyes. I see the feeling of freedom is granted as soon as the damage of vodka arrived. This how you capitalize. This is parental advice, and apparently I'm overinfluenced by what you are doing. I thought I was doing the most, and someone said to me, "Nigga, why you babysitting? Only two or three shots. I'ma show you how to turn it up a notch. First you get a swimming pool full of liquor, then you dive in it. Pool full of liquor, then you dive in it. I wave a few." We're gonna we're gonna start off 
Because we can we can go on because it's brown liquor is talking. <laughs> brown liquor wants to, again. What's the brown liquor again? Belvini. Belvini. So. Gosh. You know what? If we do this again, if we do this again, well, not not if, but when we do this again, maybe we can tell the people what we're gonna be drinking so that they can get it prepared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And start drinking. So what's the what's the plan for next time? The Brown Liquor Chronicles. Two brothers. Just waxing philosophical about life. Yeah. So what, what's what's it gonna be? Because I'm not a liquor man. You're the liquor man. What is it gonna be? So the people right, out there so listening can get their bottle yeah. and be ready. Today we did Balvini. I think we got to next time try the Glenlivet. The Glenlivet. Glenlivet, yeah. Glenlivet, any particular 14 year old scotch. 14 year old scotch. So these people gotta go and buy a $90 bottle for a podcast? They don't even. Hey, look, they're not paying for the podcast. They can pay for the damn liquor. Oh my, so $90? Can they get a discount on Amazon or someplace? Well, so, 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 so check the move. All right. So you don't have to do Glen Living. You could do Crown if that's your shit. Okay, so we start with Crown. Let's do that. Yeah, they can do Crown. Well, we're not, not doing Crown. We're not doing Crown. They can do Crown. If you're in that ilk, and you can go out and drop 70 to 90 somewhere yeah. on a bottle. Mm-hmm. Now, do they get this at the ABC store, or where do they got to go to get this? Yeah, ABC got it. Okay, so it's Glen. What's it called? Glen Livid. Glen Livid. Single, double, double? Single, single malt. Single malt. 14-year-old scotch. 14 years. That's what we're going to be drinking. The next time you see an episode of the Brown Liquor Chronicles on Ubuntu Radio, the second episode, that's what we're going to be drinking. So if you want to participate actively, that's what you got to need to have. And our glasses, you said they're double shots? Double shots. Double shots. And we're clinking again because we're about a shot gone. You second round. More, you got a lot more than me. Second round. Okay. So that means I got to I got I got a drink right now. Well, but you you kind of a rookie though. That's okay. But I got to say, as somebody who doesn't like beer because physically just makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. If I want to get the buzz, the mm-hmm. mental effect that we all like, mm-hmm. why am I going to have to go through some physical torture of not <laughs> You know what I'm saying? So right. this this I don't feel anything physical. It's like I'm drinking water. Yeah. But that bus is there, so I understand. Get what you, you, you get. What I you understand. Going. I understand what I'm saying. Yeah. So, we're gonna start wrapping up on this. Um, so I'm gonna ask you a simple question because it's funny. We're looking at this in the background. CNN in the '80s and Donald Trump just came on. Yeah. So we're gonna finish there because <laughs> one of the reasons I know you have this to... motherfucker. Oh, there it is. There it is. Some strong opinions <laughs> as a black man and an attorney. About 45. He who shall not be named for the rest of this segment. So, easy question for you. How do we fix the criminal justice system in America? And what would you do about it? Because our president seems to be able to put some proclamations out there that he is the answer to these things. And we spent about two hours talking. How do you fix it, D? 